David Roller. <laughs> well, let me see. Uh, we all know David, and we're certainly glad that we ask David to participate each year. And uh, he usually gets one lesson. He always says humbly, I ah, know, I don't need to speak. We'll let the other guys speak. Uh, so we're always glad to hear David each, each week. We thank you, David. Uh, good, he has a great support system in his in-laws and his, his wife and his children. So uh, it's real good. Now, let, me, uh, let me just real quick, because we just had a great big meal. It was awesome. Uh, the ladies, the ones who put it together, the ones who work behind the scenes, so to speak, you'll see it on the, on the slides sometimes. The ones who work behind the scenes. Thank you, thank you, thank you. It's, it's a really, really good meal. And David's going to keep us awake for the next 45 minutes or so. David Rollett. Oh, it is good to see you all stuck around after the lunchtime hour. The, the after the lunch hour is always difficult because everybody's full and wants to go take a nap. Um, but like Bob said, we'll try to keep you awake. And to be honest, all the other speakers said anything of importance I might have said. So all that I'm doing is going to be kind of a review because they covered all the important things so far. But when we look around at the society around us, the, the way that things are going, it can really get us down. You know, we see corruption, we see sin, we see false religions that seem to be flourishing. And when we look at that, it can seem like we are outnumbered. It can seem like it's hopeless. And it's easy to become depressed or anxious or stressed, as I talked about in my sermons the last couple weeks. And we know that as Christians, that's not the attitude we should have, but it's easy to fall into that when we look at how it seems like we're outnumbered. But of course we know, we know that we should be confident, that we should be courageous. Obviously not in ourselves, but in God. Okay, so we know that, but how do we get that? You can't just say, well, hey, now I'm confident. Woohoo! How do we get that confidence? So today, in my lesson, the lesson of the title is, There are more with us than with them. 2 Kings 6, 8-23. We're going to be looking at an example from Elijah, Elisha's life, where he showed great confidence in the Lord, and we're going to look at why he could have that confidence, and what we can do to develop that confidence in the Lord. We're going to first look at the fact that true confidence is born of faith in God. We're then going to look at the fact that mercy is better solution than malice. And if, in case you're wondering, the picture on the, on the slide is from Tel Dothan, which this event is going to be taking place primarily on Dothan. It's a, it's a city. And so that is the valley that very possibly... Elisha and his servant were looking across when they're surrounded by the enemy. So, let's jump in and let's look at the fact that true confidence is born of faith in God. Let's go to 2 Kings 6, verses 8 through 17. In the first section, we're going to see evidence of God's protection, verses 8 through 10. And we read, Now the king of Aram was warring against Israel, and he counseled with his servants, saying, In such and such a place shall be my camp. 
The man of God sent word to the king of Israel, saying, Beware that you do not pass this place. For the Aramean... I have a hard time with that one. Arameans? Arameans? Anyways. Are coming down there. The king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God had told him. Thus he warned him, so that he guarded himself there more than once or twice. And think about how frustrating that must have been to the king of Aram. I'm making my plans, we're going to go attack the Israelites, and the king knows. He knows what's going on. What we have here, though, is that God was clearly looking out for Israel through Elisha. He is very obviously looking out for them. And as has been pointed out, the king at this time wasn't exactly faithful to God. The nation wasn't exactly towing a straight line as far as obedience to God. But God is still looking out for them. He's giving them warnings where the king of Aram is going to be. Well, okay, so the king of Aram, he gets upset. And he wants to capture Elisha. We read 11 through 14. Now the heart of the king of Aram was enraged over these things. And he called his servants and said to them, Will you tell me which of us is for the king of Israel? He thinks there's a spy, which is logical, right? They know all our plans. There's got to be a spy. One of his servants said, No, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. So he said, Go see where he is, that I might send and take him. And it was told to him, saying, Behold, he is in Dothan. He sent horses and chariots and a great army there, and they came by night and surrounded the city. Now, at first glance, we read that and we think, well, okay, if a king is told, no, there's no spy, but this guy miraculously knows what you say in your most secret chamber, most people will be like, nice try, you're the, the spy. But what just happened previously? Well, we saw previously that God's power was demonstrated by the, the healing of Naaman. We've seen over and over again that God is very clearly with this man of God. And so the king of Aram, he says, okay, we're going to get this resource for ourselves. We're going to go capture him. You notice what it says there. Go and see where he is, that I may send and take him. And it was told him, saying, behold, he's in Dothan. He sent horses and chariots and a great army there. And they came by night and surrounded the city. Okay, I'm, I'm no warrior, but this isn't a hit squad. You know, he's not sending in some assassins to go take this guy out. This is a capture squad. He wants to go take the city and capture this man of God. Kidnap him. Take this resource for his own. But now look what he sends. Horses, chariots, and a great army. So this is, this is a big force. A force to, to conquer. And they came by night and surrounded the city. So they're coming in in secret. Now imagine how scary that would be. You go to bed in Dothan, you know, everything's cool, everything's chill. And you wake up and there's an army surrounding the city. Let's read where the servant does. Verse 15. Now when the attendant of the man of God had risen early and gone out, behold, an army with horses and chariots were circling the city. And his servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? I, that, that's a pretty reasonable response, right? Uh, prophet, what are we going to do? We're in trouble. 
We're not escaping this. They're in a relatively small city. This is not a strong garrison. There's a big army out there. We're in trouble. And you know, sometimes we feel like this in our lives. We live in the Northeast. It's not like we're in the Bible Belt. And society right now is not exactly bowing itself down to God. There's laws that have been passed and are being passed that are contrary to God's word. In fact, as was spoken about earlier in the lectureship, in 2020 there were churches that had people arrested for trying to assemble. It's easy to look at the world around us and say, Alas, my master, what shall we do? I'm at my wit's end. I don't know what to do. I don't know the solution. But you notice what Elijah says. So he answered, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. I love how so often God's prophets say something that seems nonsensical from a human standpoint. If you look at this from a purely human vantage point, there are not more warriors in Dothan than there are surrounding the city. From a purely human standpoint, there's no hope. But Elisha's not looking from a human standpoint. He's looking from God's vantage point. And that, that level of faith, and before we even get to the next bit that is so awesome, think about it, that this is, this is the lesson that we need to remember. That no matter what we face, God is greater. God has demonstrated over and over and over again in the lives of Elijah and Elisha that he is far greater than anything that might face the people of Israel. And even this prophet, or the servant of a prophet, was scared. Now, when we're feeling low, when we're feeling scared, we might look at the world around and say, okay, but I feel so alone. You know, I can see the forces of the enemy. But I can't see God. We may feel like that sometimes. We may feel down and depressed and worried. And so, let's look at the prayer that Elisha says. Verse 17, Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. Now, in the grand scheme of things, was it really all that important for Elisha's servant to see? Well, Elisha could probably do everything that's going to happen even if his servant couldn't see what's going on. But this goes back to that idea of care. God's care for the little people. This servant, this, just a guy that serves the prophet. I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So again, we have that same imagery we've seen over and over. The chariots of fire, the horses of fire. We've seen this when Elijah was taken up. We've seen the fire that came and consumed the, the meat on the altar, and also those soldiers that came to, to capture Elisha. This is the same imagery we've had already. And we have this, this army, chariots and fire, surrounding 
the prophet. What a great lesson for that servant of the, the prophet. And this should be our prayer as well, that we know the power of God over evil. Because we do live in evil times, and it is easy to get overwhelmed. And we're not going to, unfortunately, get to literally see angels. That'd be pretty cool, but it's not going to happen. But we can see the power of God over evil. Okay, well, again, when we're low, when we're feeling depressed, we may say, but, but that was Old Testament, right? God was doing miracles, and he was doing all sorts of amazing things. How do you know that the enemy isn't winning today? I had someone bring this question to me one time. How do we know God's still winning? How do we know that there hasn't been a great coup in heaven and Satan's running things now? Well, let's talk about that. Let's look at some New Testament passages that demonstrate to us that God is still in power. Let's go to Romans 8. And to be honest, most of my cross-references have been alluded to and or fully studied already in our lectureship. So, like I said, review. We're reviewing. Romans 8, starting in verse 28. And we read, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those who he called, he also justified. And those who he justified, he also glorified. You notice that, that God causes all things to work together for the good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. You notice he doesn't say he's going to make everything necessarily feel good at the moment, but it's going to work out for the good. And then read what he says. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Let's unpack that just for a sec. So we have the God of the universe, the God who created heaven and earth, all of matter, all of space and time. Who's going to defeat the one that created everything? Well, no one. Everything else is created. And he's the one that created it. If God is for us, who can stand against us? It goes on and says, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. So when we think about it, and we're going to look at some passages about this in a minute. All of our enemies here on earth, those people arrayed against us, the, the society, the laws, all those things, the worst they can do is harm our bodies, right? Okay, that's bad. That's, that's no fun. But ultimately, if we are persecuted unto death, well, we get to go be with God for eternity. So we win. It reminds me of Star Wars when Obi-Wan says, if you strike me down, become more powerful than you can ever imagine. If you strike us down, we win. We get to go be with God. So what's the enemy going to do? Killing us 
can't steal us from God, so he tries to bring charges against us. Think about Job. Bringing a char- the, the enemy bringing a charge against Job. You think he's faithful, but he, if you curse him, he's, he's not going to be faithful. Okay, so who's going to bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies, and he's the one that sent his son to die for us. Goes on and says, who is the one who condemns us? Or who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. So who's going to condemn us? The maker of the universe argues on our behalf. The one who died for us argues on our behalf. Has the enemy won? No. See, we have the greatest defense team in the universe. We have God himself on our side. Or more accurately, we're on his side. But, goes on and says, Who will separate from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? You know, those things, if we let them, they can drive us from God, but they can't steal us from God. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword, they cannot forcibly separate us from God. They can make us abandon God, But those things only have power over our physical form, not our eternal destination. So yeah, things may look bad, but in the end, none of those bad things can take us, can steal us, can separate us from the love of God. He goes on, he says, just as is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Love that. In all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer. In all what things? Being put to death like sheep led to the slaughter? Persecutions, tribulations, trials, all those things. In all of these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. You You think back about Elisha. He personally could not defeat all those people in hand-to-hand combat. You know, if he would have gone down there to fight that army with a sword, that would be a losing proposition. But he didn't have to. He had someone greater on his side. And if we think that we have to go do personal battle with all the things that bother us today, we're going about it wrong too. Because it's God who is the victor. And in him... We conquer through him who loved us. It goes on and says, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. None of these things can separate us from the love of God. It may look like it gets bad, but no matter how bad it seems to get, God is always more powerful than the enemy. Every single time, he is more powerful than the enemy. And this leads us to another cross-reference that drives this concept home again for us. Let's go to 1 John 4, 4 through 6. 
1 John 4, 4 through 6, and we read, You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. That statement right there really mirrors what Elisha said. You know, Elisha said, There are more with us than with them. John says, Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Our God was greater back in Elisha's day, and our God is greater now. He is greater than those who are than the one who is in the world. So what do we have to fear? Because he says, They are from the world, therefore they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So here we see those tools of the enemy again. The enemy can't forcibly remove us from God. So what's he do? Well, we have people who will pervert God's truth ever so much. Just enough so that it's no longer God's truth. And they sound good. They may even come out from in the midst of us. But they're not of God. But they're very, very seductive. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. Who's us? Us being the apostles and prophets, the writings of the New Testament. So those who are from God, they do what this says. They preach what this says. Those who don't do and preach what this says aren't from God. Now, again, going back to our friend or maybe ourselves who's seeing all the corruption, all the pain, all the, the sin in the world, that person might say, well, but Elijah's servant literally got to see the Lord's army. He literally got to see it. What can I do to build confidence in God? And that's the question, right? Because after all, it's all well and good to say God is great. But how do we make that head knowledge translate into heart knowledge? How do we actually build that? Well, we could do an entire lectureship on that. And it starts with Romans 10, 17. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing comes by the word of Christ. So let's look to God's word and see what he says. We're going to go to Philippians 4. And those who are here, uh, basically everybody but our, normal, but our speakers that was here last week, we went through this passage in great detail. But let's look at it again and see how it pertains to building confidence in God. We read starting in verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. I love the, the repeat there. And whenever a writer repeats themselves, Pay attention. This is important. Rejoice in the Lord always. You notice so he doesn't say rejoice in your circumstance. Rejoice in the bad things going on around you. He says rejoice in the Lord always. And rejoice in the Lord really encompasses a lot of different things. It encompasses God's love. We can rejoice that he loves us. We rejoice in salvation and eternal life. We rejoice in his word that he gave us, though we can know who he is. We can rejoice in the church, which he gave us as a support network. We can rejoice in opportunities to grow. James 1 talks about how we can count it all joy, my brother, when you encounter various trials, because the testing of your faith produces endurance. We can rejoice in the Lord that we have opportunities to grow. And we can look at the creation around us, as was spoken about on the first night. 
and rejoice that God gave us this beautiful creation. Now, how does that help us build confidence in God? Well, it helps us to focus on and examine all the things that make him great. Because what ends up happening, in a practical sense, we stop looking at God. We stop looking at what makes him awesome, and we end up looking at junk. We end up looking at, at things that are sinful and nasty, and I'm not, not, not necessarily talking about literally looking, but we focus on the bad, we focus on the negative, and pretty soon our, our mind is full of the bad and the negative, and we, all we see is the power of the bad and the negative. So we refocus on God. We focus on what makes Him awesome, all the amazing things we've done, and we thank Him for it. We rejoice in that. So our focus is going in the right place. Then says, let your gentle spirit be made known to all men. The Lord is near. Let your gentle spirit be made known to all men. Well, to let your gentle spirit be made known to all men, you have to first have a gentle spirit. So you have to be practicing the fruit of the Spirit. You have to be applying those things in your daily life. So you're not just hearing God's Word. You're not just thanking God and rejoicing in Him, but you're acting on what He says. Then it says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. So we want to know the power of God. We want to see Him working. But we need to stop trying to fix it all ourselves because we can't. We need to stop saying, I do. You know, you ever had a little kid and they're trying to do something that they just can't do? And you're like, okay, let me handle it. I will take care of it. Whether, whether it's tying their shoes or whether it's fixing the car. Dad will handle it. Well, sometimes they have to come to you and say, I need your help before you can actually fix the problem. If we're trying to fix everything ourselves and not going to God, we're build, trying to build faith in ourselves, not in God. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Let's unpack the prayer, supplication, and thanksgiving just a little bit. With prayer, well, we're going to the highest power for help. We're recognizing, I can't do it, I can't solve the problem myself, and we're going for help. You know, 90% of solving the problem is recognizing you have a problem, right? Supplication is giving your problems to the one who can fix them. Not just saying, hey, there's a problem, but saying, God, I, you need to fix it. I can't. I need your help. And then thankfulness is refocusing on the blessings God has given. And you think about what that does to us as we bring our troubles to God and we pour it out to him. I am trying to rejoice in you. I'm trying to act on your word, but there's all these bad things happening and I'm so stressed out because there's all this negativity and sin and all these things and we just dump it all out before God. And then we turn and we start thanking him. Thank you for your son. Thank you for the blessings and, and going through it. That gets all those things out of our mind and then gets us refocused on him. And then the result, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. This is kind of the goal we're going for, right? We want to have that peace of God, that confidence in God, that goes beyond our understanding. But it doesn't just happen without us putting out anything. We could take everything we've studied and kind of 
boil it into a, a math equation. If we practice the root of spirit, rejoice, let our general spirit be made known to all men, etc. And we add to that taking our cares to God in prayer. If we do those things, the result is God's peace guarding us. And you think about what Elisha did. Well, he applied what God said, didn't he? He acted on God's word. We have record of him praying, of him taking his cares before God. And he could have that peace in front of an army because he knew his God was with him. And then we come to the second part of our passage, and we're going to see that mercy is a better solution than malice. And in this section, well, we're really, again, we're going to recap the, some of the things that have already been said. And I think it's neat that so many of the speakers have latched on to the lessons about malice, because I don't think we coordinated that. But yet, most of the speakers had something to say about the dangers of malice. We read 2 Kings 6, 18-23, and we read, When they came down to him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Strike this people with blindness, I pray. So he struck them with blindness according to the word of Elisha. Okay, so we have the, the amazing miracle here. These soldiers, all they come down, and Elisha prays. Now think about how scary that would be to be a soldier. And you're, you're in this army, this overwhelming force, and this old guy prays, and you're suddenly blind. That would be terrifying. Struck them with blindness, according to the word of Elisha. But you notice, Elisha shows kindness and gentleness in this prayer. Because he could have asked God to kill them all. God has done that in the past. When God's people are surrounded, there have been times where God struck down the enemy. Elisha could have prayed, God, kill them all. But he doesn't. He said, he prays, blind them. They're still alive. But now they're rendered unable to cause harm. And this, this really fits with the attitude Jesus said we should have towards our enemies. Let's go to Luke, real quick. Luke 6, 31-35. And we read, treat others the same way you want them to treat you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to, um, sorry, I lost my place. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Jesus tells us to do good to our enemies, to pray for those who are persecuting us. But there's a good lesson here I think that we can learn from Elisha. And that is that Doing good to our enemies doesn't mean we have to let our enemies walk all over us. We don't have to be doormats. He didn't say, well, I'm supposed to be good to my enemies, so go ahead, capture me, take me to your king. He prayed, God, strike them with blindness. And then watch what he does. Then Elisha said to them, this is not the way, nor is this the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he brought them to Samaria. Now, Samaria, if I'm understanding it right, was eight or ten miles away. And 
So he takes them over there to the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. Now here's the question, though. Did he mislead them? Did he lie to them? Did he sin in saying, this is not the way, nor is this a city. Follow me, and I'll bring you to the man whom you seek. Well, I'm going to say no. And I'm going to say no because he's working on a higher plan. God's plan is for the hostilities to cease between these nations. The real goal is for that hostility to cease. So he leads them to Samaria. And when he come into Samaria, Elisha said, O Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. So the Lord opened their eyes and they saw, and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. How utterly terrifying. You're struck blind, you're led someplace, you don't know where you're going, and you open your eyes and you're in the midst of the enemy stronghold. Surrounded by enemies. That would be utterly terrifying for these soldiers. But then see what the king does. Again, this is not a, a righteous king. The king of Israel, when he saw them, said to Elisha, My father, shall I kill them? Shall I kill them? I almost hear some eagerness there. I may be wrong about that, but it sounds almost like he's eager. And the king here, he's got a very understandable reaction. You know, when you're put in power over your enemies, when you've got them in your hand, it's a very human reaction to say, you know, I'm going to end this. I'm going to kill them. I'm going to take them out. And we may have very similar temptations. We may be tempted to have similar reactions. Hopefully not killing. But we may think or say things like, well, if you cross me, I'll ruin you. You know, if, if, I, if I get an opportunity, I'm going I'm to ruin you. Or we might think or say, well, I'll never forgive you for that. I have power over you. I'm going to keep that power and I'm going to use it against you. Or, well, with this information, I can destroy their reputation. Those are all very, very human ideas, all very human and understandable reactions to gaining some power over someone we see as an opponent. But this is, is not the way God's people should react. After all, Jesus said to love your enemies and do good to those who persecute you. And Elisha demonstrates that. He says, he answers, you shall not kill them. Would you kill those who you have taken captive with your sword and with your bow? Set bread and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. That is very contrary to human wisdom. Human wisdom would say, don't give them food and water and send them home. Put them in a POW camp and hold them ransom or something. But Elisha says, put bread and water before them, send them home. Elijah advocates mercy. Rather than acting on malice, he advocates for mercy. And we're given a similar command. Let's go to Romans 12. Romans 12, 17 through 21. And we read, Romans 12, starting verse 17, Never pay back evil to evil for anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. So don't go and look for vengeance. Don't seek to pay back evil for evil, but seek to be at peace. So Christians, well, we should seek to be peacemakers, not trouble stirrers. We should always be seeking that peace. 
He goes forward and he says, Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. This gets hard. Because sometimes it may seem that God is letting people get away with their evil. We look at the world around us and there's corruption and there's sin and people seem to be getting away with it. And not just getting away, but flourishing in it. And we see in individuals' lives that there's people who we've seen them do evil things and they seem to be getting away with it. And it may seem like God is not doing anything with it. And so we're tempted. We're tempted to take things into our own hands, to act on it, to bring about the judgment that we think should be happening. But the thing about it is that we do not know what God might have planned for them. Think about Saul of Tarsus, a man who was arguably evil to the core, pulling people out of their homes, beating them, possibly killing them, but definitely putting them in jail simply for being Christians, getting permission to go to other cities to do the same thing. And if some well-meaning but misled first-century Christian had said, you know what, I'm going to take care of this guy, I'm going to take him out. I'm going to take my sword and I'm going to go run him through. God would have found other ways to, to get his plan to happen. But Paul went on to plant a huge number of churches. He got converted. He became a great preacher, a great speaker, a great missionary. He wrote most of our New Testament. If someone had taken God's vengeance into their own hands, think about the great worker that could have been lost. And we don't know, these people that we interact with, we don't know what God may have in store to, for them if we only show them mercy instead of malice. We should never take vengeance into our own hands. And, and this is hard. I'm, I'm not trying to cover that up. Because we get mad. <laughs> you know, we get angry. And, and even mature Christians get to a point where they just say it. I've had it. I've had it with this person. But we should never take vengeance into our own hands. He goes on and we read, But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him drink. That's exactly what Elisha did, isn't it? For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. And there's a few different interpretations of exactly what's being said there, whether it's going to eat the enemy up inside like you're, like you're burning them, or whether it's like giving them a pot of coals to put on their head and carry home, to light their, their fire. Whatever interpretation is actually right, I'm not 100% sure. But the point is found in verse 21. Do not become overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That right there is the crux of the matter. Do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. See, we cannot combat evil with evil. I think somebody already said that in the lectureship. If you try to combat evil with evil, it just perpetuates evil. So instead, we can only combat evil with righteousness. And we can only act righteously by doing as God has said. So, we come towards the end of our lesson, and the question becomes, what resulted from Elijah's mercy? What was the end result? Well, verse 23, 2 Kings 6, 23 so he prepared a great feast for them, and when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away. And they went to their masters, and the marauding bands of Armenians, 
have a hard time with that. You want to say Armenians, Aramians, you know, people from Aram, did not come again into the land of Israel. So the raids were stopped with mercy, not the sword. If the king had done as he wanted and killed them all, the king of Aram would have just turned around and sent another force to attack Samaria. And the, the raids back and forth would have continued and there would be more bloodshed. But instead, he shows mercy. He sends these guys home unharmed with full bellies. Now that king of Aram has seen one of his great warriors cured of leprosy. He's seen his people shown mercy when he was the aggressor. And so he stops the attacks. He stops the, the, the raids. See, our mercy might bring about similar results. We don't know what God has in store. We don't see what is over the next rise, as it were. All we can do is obey his word, act with mercy, and he will take care of the rest. So today, as we've been talking about the fact that there are more with us than with them, we've seen that faith in God, that, sorry, true confidence comes from faith in God. And we've seen that mercy is a better solution than malice. So what I want us to go home with tonight is this. Romans 12, 21 do not become overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. In everything we do, as we go home, as we take these great lessons we've had to this weekend, and we start applying them to our lives, in every situation, we need to remember, well, we can't overcome evil with more evil. So let's overcome evil with good. Thank you for your time and your attention, and we'll see you back here this evening for uh, Patrick's lesson in evening worship. Thank you.